0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
0: I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program is more inflation ahead. I'm Tom Busby in New York.
3: I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where we're looking ahead to the next set of inflation numbers from the euro area. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll look ahead to the first hearings into the SVB and signature bank collapses.
4: I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. We look at the restructuring plan finally delivered by China Evergrande Group and the court and what it means for China's property recovery.
5: That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app.
2: Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with inflation, the driving force behind the Fed's decision to raise its benchmark lending rate again last week, despite the banking crisis. And this coming week, more headlines on inflation with a key reading on consumer prices, also on economic growth in the final quarter of last year. And joining me now to talk about all this and more, Bloomberg's global economics and policy editor, Michael McKee. Michael, welcome.
6: Uh, Nice to be here.
2: (laughs) Well, Michael, we'll be getting, and this is a mouthful, the U.S. Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index from February this week. What is it? What does it measure?
6: It is the Fed's favorite measure of inflation. It's constructed a little bit differently from the Consumer Price Index. It uh, has different weights on the kinds of things that people buy. But the Fed looks at it as um, a much better indicator of where underlying inflation actually is. So, They're expecting a three-tenths increase uh, for the – month-over-month index, which would be down from six-tenths. And that would be, in theory, good news. It would take the year-over-year level down to 5.1 from 5.4. They're really watching CORE, which uh, came in at six-tenths in January. They think it'll – economists surveyed by Bloomberg think it'll go down to four-tenths. And uh, so that would show progress against inflation. The Fed is also looking at these PCE numbers to see what's happening with the services side. But that part is not uh, forecast.
2: Now, we got a a surprise increase in January, Uh, you know, also along with consumer spending. Was that, they think, just an anomaly in January?
6: Uh, Not an anomaly. What basically they think is happening is the low-hanging fruit for inflation has been picked, and now it gets harder to root out the inflation in various categories. And so we're going to see some lumpy inflation reports. Some months it'll go up a little bit and surprise people, and some months it may fall faster than anticipated. But we had their um, annual, uh, not annual, but quarterly new uh, economic projections out this week. And they think that uh, inflation is going to fall, the PCE inflation is going to fall to about 3.4% by the end of the year. So at 5.1%. One, if that's what it comes in at in February, that would still be a significant decline by the end of the year.
2: And is that why this is often called the PCE price deflator?
6: Well, it's called the deflator because here's what they do. It, it's part of the collection of data for the GDP report, which we also get uh, coming out for the fourth quarter, although they do the uh, PCE price collection monthly. But they uh, take the uh, GDP numbers and they subtract inflation. They deflate inflation. And so the, the uh, data that they use is called the deflator. Ah, uh, okay. Now, uh, more on inflation. a Stubbornly high, even after nine
2: straight increases in the federal funds rate. So what are some of the main drivers of inflation that the Fed is still concerned about right now?
6: Well, we're still concerned mostly about housing. That's been the biggest problem for the Fed all along. Uh, it has a smaller weight in the PCE, which may be one reason they think it's going to come down some. Uh, it is uh, uh, only about... Uh, maybe 25% or so of the PCE, where it's about 40% in the CPI. So that's an issue. Um, They're also looking at some unusual things like used cars. Uh, People went out and bought a lot of used cars when they came back on the market, and now there's a bit of a shortage again. So on the wholesale level, we've seen used car prices going up. The question is, does that translate over? Uh, And then people keep an eye on things like medical care uh, the areas where we have seen inflation and uh, they're trying to see if it if it continues
2: now let's dive a, a little more into housing in February we did see the first year-over-year price decline in median prices in over a decade so prices are starting to soften bidding wars pretty much evaporated mortgage rates fluctuated right now they've been down two weeks in a row so is, is all this looking good for for the PCE?
6: Yes and no. Good, but not for this PCE. Uh, The problem is it takes a long time for the housing costs uh, numbers to get into the indicators. Uh, They don't uh, look at the actual cost of housing. They look essentially at what it would cost you to rent your house today. And uh, what they find is it takes a while because you don't sign a lease every day. You don't buy a house every day either. So even if prices were falling and uh, even if they were doing – direct house prices into the index this is something that went down this month uh, wouldn't make it into the data for six or eight months uh, in general, because it takes that long to get enough uh, housing activity to uh, make a change visible to uh, the Fed. They've been expecting, because rents have been going down for about a year, they've been expecting it to start to show up anytime. And a lot of analysts think that uh, maybe by April, May, we'll start to see housing decline. And that will be one of the factors that would bring down the overall inflation rate uh, as the Fed anticipates uh, towards the end of the year.
2: Well, and that let's talk about jobs and how that factors in. Now, we've seen a lot of headlines, a lot of tech sector layoffs, some other sectors, tens of thousands, but the labor market still remains pretty strong. We won't get, you know, the, the jobs report for March for another week more, but uh, what are some of the signs you're seeing in the labor market? And is wage
6: inflation
2: still a factor?
6: Wage inflation is a factor in certain categories. One of the things that happened was we did not. Re uh, refill all the jobs in a lot of service industries that uh, went away during the pandemic, and so companies, restaurants, uh, bars, people like that. Uh, Are struggling to find workers to fill the jobs and so they have had to raise wages and we've seen those categories of wages continue to rise the question is uh, do they start to flatten out there are some tentative signs that's the case even though hiring has been fairly strong so uh, we're really watching wages in the service sector and as far as prices the Fed has been watching the service sector because of those wages since in services much of your cost is labor the when they have to raise uh, wages for, to attract employees, then that's going to have an impact on what they charge you um, for the service that you get.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Now, also this week, we talked about it just for a moment. The latest read, economic growth for the end of last year, fourth quarter GDP. This one, looking backward a bit, but for all the hemming and hawing about economic weakness,
6: it looks like it's going to be pretty good. Well, this is the uh, second revision to the number, and so it doesn't carry as much weight. Uh, The Commerce Department looks at, uh, Census Bureau looks at uh, all the sales of uh, products in the United States, but uh, it takes a while to get all the data in. So they uh, will put out a first uh, first indication, and then they start putting out uh, revisions to it. And this is the the t- the sort of the final revision of this series. It'll be revised again next year when they get benchmark numbers. But for right now, they're looking at uh, 2.7%, which would be unchanged from the first revision and would be still much faster than the sustainable rate without inflation that the Fed uh, needs to see. And the Atlanta Fed GDP Now number, which is uh, Sort of a now cast of what they think the data are telling us about the current quarter uh, is showing 3.2% growth. So that really uh, suggests that the economy has not slowed down. Now, we're only going to just start getting uh, March data in the next few weeks. So that could change things. But right now, between the fourth quarter and the first quarter, it still looks pretty strong.
2: Uh, but that March data is certainly going to reflect the crisis in banking and, and what it means to lending and on economic growth. And, and you know, we don't know when this is going to end, we, if it's going to end, how bad it's going to get. But it, it's certainly going to weigh on things.
6: Well, uh, there's an old uh, law in economics. Uh, if something can't continue, it will stop. And so at some point, this will stop. We just don't know when. Uh, the The data for March may not reflect a lot of this because the way the crisis would hit the economy is if banks stop lending, Uh, if they raise their lending standards so high to – keep from having uh, problems, then uh, we would see a restriction of the flow of credit into the economy. And that'll take a while to show up, because in the same sort of manner, you don't buy a house every day, you don't go to the bank for a loan every day, and businesses have to make decisions about whether they're going to still want to get loans. The Fed does a couple surveys, one, the Senior Loan Officer Survey, which will be out in April, and it will tell us whether banks have tightened credit standards. But they also have a survey of credit officers that uh, the most recent one out a couple weeks ago showed that demand for loans was off significantly. And that was before the banking crisis. That was just saying that loans have gotten expensive and uh, companies at this point are saying maybe we don't want to pay that.
2: Oh, boy. Well, we live in interesting times. Michael, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. That was our Global Economics and Policy Editor, Michael McKee. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, inflation back in focus in Europe this week. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg.
0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. You know success when you see it.
1: APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. And up later in our program... What's ahead in our nation's capital? But first, after last week's central bank meetings, inflation will be back in focus in Europe this week with the first March readings for the euro area and some of its major economies. This after European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde said that underlying inflation wasn't trending down. For more, let's head to London and bring in London Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll.
3: Stephen. Tom, February was a month of inflation surprises in Europe. The German and French numbers came in higher than expected, just like they did here in the UK. So will the March data bring good or bad news for officials at the European Central Bank? Well, to discuss, I'm joined by Bloomberg's chief Europe economist, Jamie Rush. Jamie, so we had a few surprises in February. The wider Eurozone reading was 8.5%, still a downward trajectory from the peak that we had in October. What's the general expectation for March?
7: Well, we're expecting headline inflation to drop from 85 to 7%. So it's a big drop, largely caused by energy prices. Um, and you know, there's, there's an element of inflation which is going to fall, and that's just baked in because of the energy cost stuff. So, so that's what we're expecting for headline. Core, though, probably, very similar to where it was uh, in uh, in the last month. So around about 5.7%. And we think it'll probably be around that number for the next few months.
3: And that's something that's very important for the ECB. We'll get to that in a moment. But I want to reflect a little bit on what happened in February, because first of all, we had the, the Spanish reading coming in, then France and Germany came in hotter. You know, where did those surprises come from the last time around? Or, and does it give us any clues as to where we could be looking for surprises this time?
7: Well, I, I think like the, the troubling thing when you looked at all the numbers from the eurozone was that services price inflation picked up, and so this is the thing that we need to probably pay most attention to. It's not always the, like the most clear read on inflation because it bounces around up and down because of like package holidays in Germany, for example, uh, airfares. There's, there's lots of stuff that moves things around, but I, I think that's that's where these people be focused. That's, that's certainly where we're focused.
3: In terms of energy prices, of course, the energy price shock was what drove so much of this inflation uh, over the past year. Has that effect largely petered out now?
7: Not yet. Not in the annual rate. I mean, it's still got quite a, quite a bit further to run. Um, but by the end of the year, we should be heading back towards sort of like 3% headline inflation rates. Um, and the energy costs could even start to push down on the, uh, on the headline rate a bit further out. How much of the
3: differential in rates that we see across the euro area, because, I mean, look if you look at the numbers across the 20 countries, Hungary's CPI was nearly 26% in February. The lowest reading was in Luxembourg at 4.8%. How much of this is down to national factors and national responses uh, to inflation? I'm thinking about things like the energy price cap in France. Does, that, does those sort of differentials still hold when we think about the numbers to
7: come? Yeah, it's made a massive difference. Um, I mean, Europe, broadly speaking, has faced the same sort of shock. There's a bit of a difference in the mix, and like how, which uh, countries consume what proportion of gas, electricity, this sort of thing. Um, but generally speaking, it comes down to how governments have responded and how it's been priced and, and hedging against, uh, against changing energy prices. So there's a massive difference on the way up. There's going to be a big difference on the way down. Now, obviously, this is going to be very important to what the European Central Bank does in its next rate
3: decision, although that's not until early May. Now, Christine Lagarde has been speaking about the inflation picture in recent days. Let's listen to some of her speech at the ECB and its Watchers conference, which we brought to you live on Bloomberg Radio.
7: The euro area has been hit by an inflation shock, which is now working its way through the economy. While headline inflation is likely to decline steeply this year, Driven by falling energy prices and easing supply bottlenecks, underlying inflation dynamics remain strong. And in such an environment, our ultimate goal is clear. We must and we will bring down inflation to our medium term target in a timely manner.
3: So that was Christine Lagarde speaking at the ECB and its Watchers Conference in Frankfurt. Jamie, the last ECB decision, which is, really isn't very long ago in, in the grand scheme of things, they got in a 50 basis point hike. There had been lots of speculation on the run up to it that perhaps the, the instability in the banking sector might affect that. Um, how should we be thinking about the ECB's trajectory from here, given that they did manage to get through a 50 basis point hike last time around?
7: So I think on, on the last meeting, there's, there's an important thing to understand, which, which is that you can be hawkish in two ways now. You can be hawkish because you're worried about underlying inflation being too high, but you can also be hawkish about the division of monetary policy and financial uh, policy. Um, and that's what we saw. You can be a dove about inflation, but not want to muddy the water between monetary policy and financial stability. And so I think that's probably why they have much more support for the the big 50 basis point hike uh, than, than markets were expecting even up to the day. Um And that carries forward to the subsequent meetings. They're still going to be focusing on this division between monetary and financial stability. And we've heard from Lagarde, they're going to be thinking about three things as they set policy. They're going to be thinking about inflation forecasts. Uh, They're going to be thinking about underlying inflation as measured now. And they're going to be thinking about how much policy is transmitting to the economy. So they're monitoring those three things. Uh, Our view is that the banking crisis isn't yet severe enough to take rate hikes off the table. And we think they're going to keep hiking 25 basis points a meeting through the summer.
3: What does that mean then, in terms of the
7: the sort of terminal rate? Where do you see that now? I think we're probably getting somewhere between three and a half and 3.75. Um, there there has been a a, a tightening of financial conditions uh, in terms of the cost of credit for for banks relative to risk-free rates. That is going to be. That is going to weigh on the economy a bit in future years, but it takes like it takes one hike out of the cycle. It doesn't take it doesn't take three out. So I think whereas markets were previously expecting a terminal rate of four percent, somewhere three and a half, three point seven five. Now now that's reasonable to us. Christine Lagarde did mention wage
3: pressures uh, in that speech in Frankfurt. What is the situation as regards wage inflation in Europe, and and how does that feed into the broader inflationary picture?
7: Well, so so we we've had this energy shock and we're going to decide who's going to pay for it um and it's a negotiation between employees and between businesses and so far uh businesses have basically won like they've expanded their profit margins quite a lot and they haven't made made good on on wage gains all that much so uh the question is are house are employees going to achieve these uh, some compensation over the coming year and the more they push for it and the higher their wage costs go up uh, the the longer inflation is going to be is going to stay high so i think that's that the, it's a negotiation um the, the moment the balance is probably already swung too far in favor of businesses uh, but the are upside risks the inflation outlook from that from that uh, that negotiation we, of course, are
3: sitting here in London looking at the picture as well. How different is the picture for Eurozone inflation versus inflation in the UK?
7: Well, here in the UK uh, and in the US, we, we do have really strong wage growth, which is pushing up costs for businesses and extending the overshoot of inflation relative to the target. In the Eurozone, it's not quite there yet. Um, so I think that's the main difference. We have a, a difference in the amount of underlying pressure in the economy. And you could definitely say, I think, that the UK and the US are overheating by more.
3: We have a couple more data points to come before the next ECB meeting, um, but I am conscious that we're, we're looking ahead to, to the March figures. How, I suppose, how important will it be in that scheme of policymaking uh, when we come towards the next decision?
7: Well, I think they're going to want to see under underlying inflation come down. I mean, they've said as much and they're not going to see that probably until maybe even as late as September. So I think there's, there's nothing, there's not going to be a major change in, in core inflation or the underlying cost pressure until you get to the end of the summer. So that, that keeps them hiking. I mean the main risk to that is just that something else blows up in the, in the banking sector or that the tensions we've seen so far turn out to be more painful than people envisage, in which case, you know, the all bets are off.
3: Okay. Bloomberg's chief Europe economist, Jamie Rush, thank you very much for joining us with those insights. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And
2: coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the latest out of our nation's capital. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg.
0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen.
5: Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, to London, DAB Digital Radio, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom
2: Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. On Tuesday, the Senate Banking Committee will hold the first of several hearings on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. For what we can expect, let's head to our Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington and sound on host Joe Matthew.
5: Thanks, Tom. I'm joined by Kaylee Lines here in Washington as we look ahead now to the week on Capitol Hill. You thought this past week was fun? (laughs) We may not have TikTok influencers crowding the halls of Congress next week, but we do have a lot of heavy-duty stuff on the calendar here. Uh, Kaylee, it begins with the first banking hearings, the first hearings into the collapse of SVB and Silicon Bank. We've been waiting for these. And as Emily Wilkins at Bloomberg Government will help us uh, look ahead to as well, some important energy legislation uh, will dominate the House next week. So, you know, rest up this weekend, right? (laughs)
8: Yeah, uh, definitely. Because... It's going to be two days of probably what is going to be pretty intense questioning of regulators on Capitol Hill. We thought the first hearing in inquiring as to what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank was going to be in the House. They announced it first, Chairman Patrick McHenry and Ranking Member Maxine Waters, that they're going to have the hearing on Wednesday. Then the Senate Banking Committee came out and said they are actually going to have their hearing Tuesday. (laughs) So that will be the one that we get first. But same witnesses – We'll have Marty Grunberg from the FDIC, Michael Barr, the vice chair of supervision at the Fed, Nellie Lang, the undersecretary for domestic finance at the Treasury Department. So they will all three be testifying both days. And in the statements that the committees put out, the language is the same. We want to get to the bottom of how Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapsed. And they say that's to maintain a strong banking system going forward. My question, Joe, is how much of it is going to be backward looking at what happened versus forward-looking. What should we do now so it doesn't happen again? Well, that's what
5: we've heard. And let's add uh, Emily Wilkins' voice to this. Uh, Emily, there's been a lot of talk about an autopsy, right, a postmortem, and lawmakers don't want to suggest a solution in many cases until they figure out what happened uh, to, to bring us to this point. But are we ever going to do anything beyond hearings?
9: That is a really good question, because I think the question is, what could actually be done Uh, republicans in the house have been pretty firm that they do not want more regulation uh, that they are not very interested in a long-term increase of uh these fdic uh, deposit insurance caps um and you do see you know some democrats who are interested in it but we have split government and you really need that bipartisan support and what you've seen from patrick mchenry is a lot of that level-headed cautiousness that let's look into this let's actually find the causes you know some of his colleagues have have veered into uh, some more partisan talking points when it comes to the banking crisis he has not he has kind of kept things very very level At the same point, though, for a lot of these lawmakers, you know, at this point, we we haven't heard of any more banks closing. Uh, It seems like for now, the bleeding has been stopped. Uh, At least that is the sense on Capitol Hill. And if that's the case, then the momentum for actually having more legislation is going to lessen the more that lawmakers see this as as a crisis that has already been addressed.
5: Kaylee, I'm stuck on this Moody's warning that we got. Risk that banking system stress will spill over into other sectors unleashing greater financial and economic damage than anticipated, and we're still trying to figure out what happened a month ago?
8: Yeah, no, it, it's a, it's an excellent point, because obviously, as we're trying to dissect the failures that have already happened, you risk if you overanalyze too much or spend too much time doing so that you don't prevent the failures that could be uh, to come, perhaps, because we're all still watching First Republic, which has been in our focus for several weeks. They had the $30 billion in deposits put in by 11 larger banks. We know that the, the Treasury or Secretary Janet Yellen had a hand in navigating that. And then there was the talk of potentially converting that into a capital uh, in Fusion that doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. We really haven't gotten any real news, and I keep asking people: is no news good news, or is no news bad news in this <laughs> right. case? And we really, we really don't know. So I think there are still things we're on high alert for, and it raises the question, Emily, especially when we have had a week in which Janet Yellen has had to, you know, clarify some of her remarks, try to make tweaks to her language to, to convey to the markets perhaps what she really is trying to say about uh, ensuring uh, deposits if there is some kind of systemic risk just kind of if that is e- led the market seem to be latching onto each and every word and yet it's not really anything that the treasury can do except for in emergencies right and congress isn't likely to give her much room otherwise
9: yeah i mean congress well, congress tends to act two different times A, if there is a giant emergency and Congress is the only one who can do anything to fix it, or B, if there is some absolute hard deadline coming up that you can't pass, uh, see the debt limit uh, later this summer into this fall. Um, And at this point, I mean, there is that sense that, that, look, I don't think lawmakers are thinking that they're out of the woods when I say that the bleeding is stemmed. I'm not suggesting that Capitol Hill is now ignoring banks or no longer paying attention to this issue or no longer feels that this issue is important. But I do feel like there is a lack of, of a crisis mode and just a, a cooling of some of the urgency than, that you saw previously. Now, certainly, if that reverses, if we do see more banks get in danger, if we do see uh, you know the Treasury and, and the FDIC having to step in more, you might see that urgency increase on Capitol Hill and you might start seeing folks talking about some sort of increase in, in caps. Um, But I think at this point, Congress is kind of watching to see what happens next. And some of the urgency that was really there in the early days of Signature Valley Bank and Signature Bank, um, it's just it's not it's not as palatable on the Hill right now.
5: Kelly, did you hear what Larry Summers said about the deposit insurance? He, He talked to David Weston about it and actually made a little bit of news. He wants to have a much more full-throated statement here coming out of the Treasury Department.
8: Yeah, basically make it clear, and he thinks they should pledge that they will back uninsured deposits in any banks that fail in the next year. How palatable is that, though, really politically?
5: Exactly. Here's what he said. There needs to be clarity
6: on the situation regarding deposits. Authorities do not have the authority to say that there's going to be some kind of universal guarantee on deposits what what they do have is the essentially equivalent power to declare that in the event of a bank's failure they will in- use the systematic risk exemption in order to assure that depositors are paid off in full
5: okay so as long as the treasury if they did that if Janet Yellen came out today and said that what motivation do lawmakers have to stick their necks out and act?
8: That's a really good question and I wonder what we're going to hear about this next week. I wonder how much just lawmakers the will, be, do will be questioning to the regulators, "Hey, what is your preferred policy yeah. initiative going from here? Should we just leave it up leave it up to you guys, leave it up to the Treasury Department?"
5: Hey Emily, we got to talk about energy legislation as well, not just any legislation, but HR1. This is the one they put HR1 on, which typically means an important bit of messaging from the majority, in this case, the Republican Party in the House. Uh, I'm assuming this is going nowhere with a Democratic led Congress, Emily, but how does it work?
9: Well, HR1 is, I would not expect to see this go to the Senate and to the president, but Republicans are hoping that maybe some smaller parts of this bill. Could actually advance. I'll get to that in a minute, but basically HR1 is Republicans' big energy package. It is about producing energy in America. It is about making it easier for companies that do produce. And and we're not just talking, you know, oil and gas here, but we are actually talking nuclear. We're talking solar. We're talking wind. Republicans have really kind of adopted in in an era where more and more people are beginning to care about climate change, including in the Republican Party. You see Republicans kind of changing their message to really start to include this all of the above energy approach, where they are actually talking about renewable energy sources while continuing to talk about, you know, oil, gas, uh, coal, other different types of, of minerals. And so this is kind of their big package, their big proposal on what they're going to do. It is a messaging bill. It's something that Republicans can take back and see, see, this is what we did to lower your gas prices.
5: Thanks to Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins with Kaylee Lines. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Back to you in New York, Tom. Joe Matthew reporting from our
2: Bloomberg 991 newsroom in Washington. Thank you, Joe. And you can hear Joe on SoundOn's New Time weekdays, 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time right here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, a close-up look at what's happening with one of the huge players in the Chinese real estate market. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg.
0: The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
2: This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend our Global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. New details coming in on what's happening at one of the best known names globally in the Chinese property market. For more, let's go to Hong Kong and Bloomberg Daybreak host Brian Curtis and his colleague Doug Krisner.
4: Tom, Doug and I thought we'd take a closer look at the China Evergrande restructuring and what it means for the overall state of play in China's property sector. The plan calls for offshore creditors to swap their debt for new securities. But Evergrande needs an additional 36 to $44 billion worth of financing to ensure that it can deliver all of its properties.
5: And as a result, it could mean a delay for some of its more than 1,300 developments. And it could be a new blow to buyer confidence in projects brought forward by a number of property developers. China's housing sector, as we know, is beginning to recover. Even so, there remain many uncertainties.
4: No matter what, Evergrande will remain the world's most indebted developer. But this overhaul could provide a guidepost for other builders' restructurings. And that might be the key to unlocking the property sector for China's broader recovery. Joining us here in our studios in Hong Kong is Alice Huang, a Bloomberg China Credit reporter. So Alice, what's the general reaction to this this much awaited overhaul
10: yeah, I think, you know, Mark is still trying to digest this news, to be honest. Um, it has been a sudden quick turnaround after 15 months of, of waiting, um, following Evergrande's first public dollar bond default. Um, so what we're seeing now, actually uh, Evergrande's dollar bonds this morning um, has jumped slightly, but is still trading around 9 cents on the dollar. Now that's much, much lower than um, some of his peers that have shown us plans so far. For example, Sunac, which used to be China's fourth Largest developer um, is bonds have been trading above 20 cents on the dollar, um, so that's that's double what what Evergrande's dollar bonds are doing now. Um, but you know, arguably, uh, Evergrande's debt load is a lot uh, a lot more huge than all the other ones that we're seeing. It is um, China's largest dollar debt borrower among its peers. Um, so yeah, that really um, shows that. Um, It will have a lot more work to do uh, before people can start to see uh, see their money back.
5: So I would imagine this is a positive development, not only for property developers, but for the overall dollar bond market as well. I know shares in uh, China Evergrande have been halted since March of last year. Does this necessarily mean these developments, uh, this restructuring, does it mean that we've or will avoid a delisting of Evergrande in Hong Kong?
10: Not really. That's a very good point, actually. Um, Evergrande has a few things it needs to work through before it can avoid being delisted in September since um, its shares have been halted since March 2022. So number one, it actually needs to get the winding up petition. It's a hearing, a, a lawsuit that it's facing in Hong Kong to be either dismissed or withdrawn, um, and the, the proposal that we're seeing so far is an important step because it shows the court that the company is doing something. It will convince the court um, that it's working toward a debt resolution. Um, so. Perhaps at the next hearing the judge will uh, actually be able to dismiss the case. Uh, but just seeing the plan is not enough, Evergrande needs to get uh, bondholder support. Now we have reported that it got a major group of dollar bondholder support, but they only represent about 25% um, of outstanding dollar bonds. While Because Evergrande want to go through what's called a, a scheme of arrangement, it typically would require 75% of bondholder agreement, so you can see there's a lot to be done.
4: Alice, thanks so much for joining us here in our studios in Hong Kong. Alice Huang, Bloomberg China credit reporter. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom?
2: Thank you, Brian. And Doug, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now.